<laughs> Welcome to Nowness. This is us two women paying attention to the details of ordinary life. Nauco and Nauco's friendship spans three decades, two countries, and now two cities, San Francisco and the greater Seattle area. We are wives, working mothers, and feminists in our 40s. Nowness is just us showing up to connect and to recalibrate our voices and stories. Thanks for joining us ponder life and food and share lots of love. So excited for this conversation. We have a special guest today, my partner and best friend, Tim. Hello. <laughs> woo woo. <laughs> I've been so excited because we gave our listeners a little preview in the last episode or maybe two episodes ago is that um, education is, is a kind of like a um, recurring topic um, in our conversation nowadays, especially as <clears throat> I've become a pre-K teacher. <laughs> mm. um, and um, of course, you know, we talk about you uh, behind you. <laughs> uh, so it was so fabulous that Naoko suggested uh, you join us for Nowness so we can deep dive. And of course, one episode isn't going to be enough. <laughs> But we'll go with the flow on your, you know, mastership of of this, um, you know, of this, what do you call? Big thing called education. <laughs> so thank you for about, joining. Don't know about mastership, but lots of experience for sure. Yes. Hence you are the master. <laughs> <laughs> In our eyes. <laughs> Absolutely. Um yeah, so I don't I don't actually have any questions um uh you know in in written or anything. I just wanted to go with the flow, but um I don't know, we could go as serious as uh, my daughter is back from college just for the weekend. I mean, just for a day because we went to go see the Taylor Swift concert, but I did ask her like with the recent news and I think Nauka and I were texting about the Palestinian Israeli conflict that's happening and um, I just, it feels like college kids are, you know, protesting <clears throat> right now. And I think I don't really follow the news per se because, um, you know, it's media wash and what have you. But, um, I think I like, there was like a quick, um, insert about some company CEOs blacklisting college kids who are protesting right now, um, oh. So anyway, in the, in your high school, I'm going to reveal um, you have, you're you're a high school teacher. Um, have you talked about this? Just I don't know topic recently. Yeah, <clears throat> it's pretty tricky. Um, this topic probably trickier than any other that I can think of. Um, you know, you have kids in the room that um, are you know, Jewish kids who support Israel, Jewish kids who do not support Israel as a um, state. Um, I have lots of kids who are um, from the Middle East um, who don't necessarily take one side or the other, but it's it's a complicated room, you know, when you, when you think about like who you're talking to. Um, so I, I can't speak for other teachers. I know that the conversation has been going on um, on campus. I don't know how teachers are approaching this particular issue, but um, 
for me, <clears throat> I'm teaching an AP language um, class right now. Um, and in both my CP and AP classes, we're <clears throat> getting in how, in, into the idea of how, how do you find reliable information, credible information? Um, how do you detect bias? Um, you know, the kind of the retort, the beginnings of, you know, uh, understanding rhetorical strategy and that kind of stuff. So um, the other day we did talk a little bit about it, um, but mostly what we talked about is trying to find um, a variety of sources <clears throat> to get your news from, to get your, um, you know, to understand what the opinions are um, on both sides of the issue, which can be pretty tricky because kids typically don't, they don't use news outlets for their, as a source um, for their own personal kind of consumption of the news. They use their um, social media. And so, and we all know how social media then is gonna silo everything um, depending on what it is that you continually click on. So um, we talked quite a bit about, um, well, what Nalco and I did, um, Nalco asked me about, you know, I'm not sure what's going on there, you know, how do we find out? And so we looked at a little bit of news um, from, you know, the typical outlets like ABC News and, and CNN. But then we went uh, on YouTube, you can get live feeds from Al Jazeera. Um, <clears throat> so we looked at the American news outlets who were um, largely pro-Israel and then but then we went to Al Jazeera to look at their reporting on it, and it was quite a different um, perspective. And so, you know, my lesson the other day was not so much um, we didn't we didn't actually listen to the news, but we were talking about where do you go to find um, a variety of perspectives and um, understanding that, particularly with an issue like this one, you're always going to have. Um, there's always bias and bias creeps in in the form of um, diction and word choice. You know, it's like, um, do you call um, what Hamas did an invasion or do you call it an atrocity or an act of terror? Um, and so we talked quite a bit about um, language that people use that indicates where their bias is headed. Um, and we talked about um, you know, if you're really interested in understanding the situation, um, looking at a variety of sources so that you're not just getting one side of it. And, and the young kids seem to be more inclined, um, at least this is a generalization, but um, they seem to be on the whole more inclined to lean towards support for Palestine uh, and the Palestinians than they are for Israel. Um, but that said, I, I couldn't, I couldn't say that I couldn't claim that that was the opinion for all of them. It's just um, that seems to be the majority are leaning that way. Um, but you know, the the lesson was good, and the the discussion was good, and particularly in the AP classes about, you know, where should I go for, um, if not accurate and unbiased information, how should I explore? You know, what's the spectrum of bias? Um, that was kind of the, the point of what we were doing. Mm, thank you. Well said. <laughs> yeah, you mentioned AP, which I think we all know. Um, it's advanced placement, right? Mm -hmm. um, that's CP. What is CP? 
BP is um, just the the um, college prep. So what we, is it? Yeah. We have two two levels of English in the upper division. One is college prep English, and the other one is um, advanced placement. Oh, I guess advanced placement is like traditionally college level already. Yeah. I oh, gotcha. Yeah. And they're prepping for their tests. They have an AP exam in May that they will take. Gotcha. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, I it's exactly it. I um I think about, you know, we spoke about Moammer, uh, not Jung, because mm -hmm. uh when I was doing refugee advocacy work, um, specifically, you know, with like the current trend, awful trend is right, pointing our fingers at, you know, the Middle East. Um, I mean, especially after post 9-11. Um, and it's such a heavy topic, um, you know, with conflict that goes really thousands of years. Mm -hmm. um, but it is, it seems to, I think I had the epiphany that, <clears throat> I mean, we not only was I not aware, but it does seem that U.S. government is very pro-Israel um, for reasons that I do, I lack knowledge of. Um, but yeah, going back to Moammer, who brings humor on, um, you know, not having a place um, and then I had a dear friend, uh, colleague who was also Palestinian, um, who had a wonderful perspective as well. So only until you get these kind of like personal connections, um, can you really kind of start to, you know, understand if anything. Um, but it makes it more potent to understand because now you have like a human being that you can relate to or that it is a human problem. Um, versus like something that's happening in the news um, or in a neck of the woods that we're, you know, that we're not living in. But yeah, that's great. And I think for what you said, it's interesting that you, you're, you're, you're a teacher in California. Mm -hmm. uh, West Coast gets the tendency to be more liberal minded. Um, but that's what I love. I think um, I, I know, I, I think California gets a good reputation for, um, you know, teaching liberal minded, meaning that you bring as many unbiased um, opinions and resources to really open up the minds of young ones mm -hmm. um, versus you know, other other parts of the United States um, that is trying to get rid of or not get rid of, but just um, continue to share the, you know, one dimensional narrative of American history. Mm -hmm. So yeah, thank you. That was a heavy topic to start with. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but um, that is what nowness is about. Um, I was telling my husband, um, I started, I used to listen to NPR, um, National Public Radio on my commute and um, I stopped because I stopped commuting. Um, and then I recently started listening to it again, but oh boy, like you, you gotta love NPR, but they don't like sugarcoat anything. So I ended up listening to an interview about a um, really, I guess, uh, mom who's Israeli woman, mom whose uh, daughter got abducted from one of the um, communes where the music festival was occurring. And it was just like, I, I just felt like responsible. I wanted to turn it off and not listen. But, um, you know, as a mom, 
it was just like really heartbreaking to mm-hmm. know where your daughter yeah anyway you know there's like 100 plus hostages right now but anyway so our <clears throat> prayers go out to what's happening in the current news um so let's get back to education um but just this is part of education every- i think everything is part of edu- uh, of the umbrella of education isn't it <laughs> almost so <too> let's <laughs> Let's go to Tim. Tim, why did you, why, how, what was like, I mean, you've been a teacher for a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, can you just share, I'm just curious, like, how did you, how did you want to become a teacher? Like, what happened in your life that, yeah, you wanted to dedicate your life to being a teacher? Well, I, I've thought about that quite a bit. And, and it is something that comes up when we do professional development and, you know, we, get to know you kind of exercises that's one of the questions that um that comes up so i don't want to give a canned response but the i've thought about it quite a bit and i had um i had a coach when i was in middle school i was in sixth seventh and eighth grade um who when i was in high school um he asked me if i would be interested in coaching a fourth grade team um, at another school that he was now um, coaching at. He was the athletic director. Um, and so he invited me to coach and I did go do it um, uh, during my junior year in high school. <clears throat> Coached a fourth grade team, had a blast doing that. Um, the following year, my old um, elementary school, uh, middle school, asked me um, if I'd be interested in teaching PE um, and um, and coaching. So I coached baseball, basketball, and football, flag football. Um, So before I graduated from high school, I had two years of at least sports um, education, um, coaching, teaching PE. Um, And then when I went to college, I really didn't know what I wanted to do. Um, uh, Teaching was certainly in the running, but um, I was also interested in law. Um, I was interested in business management or marketing. Um, And so when I talked to my, my college counselor, um, at least at that time, this was the late seventies, she, she said that, you know, one of the things that, um, that lawyers and businessmen are seemingly lacking because she's hearing it from the industries that um, is communication skills. And so she said, like, if you wanted to do law, Traditionally, people would go into political science um, or pre-law as a as a major. And she said, now they're encouraging um, English graduates to apply for law school and graduate business school. So, um, so she recommended English. It was my area of strength. Um, reading and writing, definitely my strengths. Um, and so, I went ahead and, and you know that was my major. As time went on, um, I began to feel, I'm the oldest of seven kids. My parents were helping me with college. Um, I had some scholarships and stuff, but they were still helping me out. And as I got to be a senior, I realized that um, I felt an urgency to work um, as opposed to going to more school. <laughs> and so I kind of shifted toward the teaching um, option because it was going to be you know, one year for a credential rather than three years for law school or two years for MBA school. 
um, <clears throat> and then I would be able to begin working um, full time. So, in some ways, you know, the, the decision at the end was monetary. Um, you know, it was a, a an issue of trying to get to work and get off my parents, um, um, you know, kind of payroll. Um, and but the other part was that I I I did enjoy it. Um, I had you know I had a great time doing it. Um, when I was in college, I did. Um, uh, every year I did some stuff with the, um, the Special Olympics and was involved in that um, on campus. Um, so, you know, I mean, it, it was something that I knew that I was pretty good at and that I did like to do. I liked dealing with young people. Um, uh, and so that started me off. That's how I got started. That's awesome. In hindsight, 2020, do you, um, what do you think about yeah, and you not going into law or business. <clears throat> I don't regret those. Um, <clears throat> the one thing that's been a nagging regret for decades now is that uh, my um, linguistics teacher um, said that she would recommend me for um, a, a an internship under Noam Chomsky at um, University of Chicago, Illinois, and. Um, it was intriguing, but again, I was a senior and I was thinking about the need to get to work and not just continue going to school. So I turned it down. But um, I, I, I would say if I had one regret, it was that I didn't go study under um, the great master, Noam Chomsky. Um, okay, so I have heard of Noam Chomsky, but can you please remind me and maybe a few of our listeners um, At- what he has at the time, he was um, two things at once. He was the, you know, like the preeminent um, American linguist um, in study of language. And he was also um, a super left um, activist. Um, he was on television all the time talking about the Vietnam War, talking about um, American hegem- hegemony, um, eventually talking about um, state-sponsored terror um, American involvement in, in um, uh, South America. So he was a famous intellectual on the left. Um, he was um, debating the, the famous conservative intellectuals on television programs and stuff like that. So he was, he was already quite famous for his um, uh, intellectual activism. Awesomeness. So yeah, like you, um, Reading and writing, this is like really interesting because, um, yeah, I get to know Tim more than I ever knew. Um, and so like, uh, like how young can you recollect when you like started to like reading and writing? Reading very young. Um, my grandmother, when I was, before I went to school, my grandmother, um, volunteered at the Sunnyvale Public Library and <clears throat> when she ba- babysat me, she would take me to the library with her. And so I spent, when I was four years old, um, hours in libraries, um, wandering around, looking at the books on the shelves, um, somehow learning to read before I went to kindergarten through, you know, people reading to me. My grandmother made sure I had the book that was going to be read at story hour um, so I could read along. Um, and so I don't remember learning to read, but um, I was... I was reading by the time I got to kindergarten and there was no preschool back then. So, um, 
between my mom and my grandmother, I think I, I learned to read before school started. Um, and, uh, and so early on, I was really interested in reading and I always wanted to go into, you know, the big people books, you know, I didn't want to be where the kids books were, I wanted to go <laughs> into the other part of the library. And um, I do remember third grade, I think, um, I had seen Moby Dick on television with my father, um, the old black and white Gregory Peck um, film and uh, wanted to read it. And so my grandmother checked it out to me and um, I took it home and I gave it my best shot. I don't think I got even quite halfway through it, but um, I, um, I at least tried to read Moby Dick when I was in third or fourth grade. So I was definitely very interested all the way back then. Yes, that's a classic. Um, what grade is it usually recommended? That's that more not before I high school or college. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay. Clearly, I have not read the book. Okay, thank you. <laughs> I was biting off way more than I could chew. <laughs> that's awesome. So what a great influence your grandmother had. Mm -hmm. um, and what a revelation that you're saying that there was no preschool in the 70s? No, not at, as far as I know, there, there wasn't even offered at least no public preschool. Um, and so I never yeah. attended kind of preschool. No, you're right. No, you're right. I, I don't think there's public preschools available today. Are there? No, there isn't. It depends no, there isn't. <laughs> it's an anomaly. It's not necessarily free, but it's uh, subsidized. Yeah. Oh, gotcha. Yes, there is subsidy. You're right. I see. Yeah. Wow. That's so phenomenal. And like, just, I mean, how did you, so yeah, you, you started coaching um, first before you went into teaching and all that. But um, so how long, just curious, like how you decided to kind of like hone in on the high school demographic versus like other grades? Yeah, I, I didn't feel suited for um for the early grades like preschool and, and kindergarten for sure um <clears throat> i was more interested in people who were closer to adulthood um because i like the big ideas and abstractions and all that kind of stuff and so um you know one of the things i would say about my teaching is that you know um I have somewhat <clears throat> struggled with the nuts and bolts stuff. <clears throat> um, not struggled, but um, I find I have to force myself to be interested in things like grammar and you know um, that kind of stuff. What I want to get to are um, big ideas like existentialism and um, uh, mindfulness and you know those kinds of things and and kind of the um, you know, like my interest in reading tends toward postmodernism and um, things that are relatively complicated. And so I didn't want to talk about, um, you know, Little Black the Pony. Um, I wanted to talk about um, things like uh, The Stranger and, um, you know, William Faulkner and things that were, you know, a little bit more sophisticated. So that was part of it, I think. Um, I, that's where I wanted to be. Gotcha. So have you always taught in California? 
Um, no, um, I started teaching in Los Angeles um, at a private school there and then um, spent seven years in Tokyo teaching at um, Seisen International School, which is an all girls school in Tokyo. Um, and then when I came back here, um, I began teaching finally in uh, American public schools. And so um, Annalee High School in Sebastopol um, and now Hillsdale High School in San Mateo. Wow. So, oh, okay. So I know you, I never studied from you, but I know you in Tokyo for a little bit. Um, but so you never t taught at a public school prior um, no. prior to, wow. Okay. How has that, I mean, how, <laughs> again, <laughs> these are big topics and we're just going to touch the surface, but from your experience, this is through Tim's lens. Um, yeah. What's it like? How was the private versus public experience for you? Private schools. Um, well, part of the experience of private schools is the population. Of course, um, your demographic is going to be, unless kids are on scholarship, they are um, in the you know upper socioeconomic um, brackets, right? So Notre Dame High School in Los Angeles um, in Sherman Oaks was um, a whole lot of kids from the entertainment industry. Um, you know, I had a student whose father was the um, producer for Cheers. Um, I had kids who were actors, um, parents who were actors and musicians and all kinds of things. Um, so there's a lot of money. Um, so that's part of the difference. Um, the, the other part of the difference is the, the idea of um, sort of a, a constructed community, right? So like a Catholic school, even though every student isn't Catholic, the, there is this sense of a community um, that I think a lot of public high schools lack um, that um, it is inclusive in its you know membership, but um, there's nothing at the core of it necessarily other than school itself that you know kind of constitutes a community, and so that that's really hard. Well, it's more difficult to build community in that kind of setting than there is in a setting where you already have an established community that kind of serves as the core. Um, the international school, you know, the, the core of the community was um, the expat experience, um, that there were so many expatriates um, that um, this shared kind of experience of living in a culture other than the one that you were born into um, was a, a unifying kind of you know, factor, regardless of what religion people practice, even though it was a Catholic school, um, only nominally, I would say. Um, you know, in that sense, but um, public schools struggle to, you know, kind of artificially create these sort of core communities, right, that um, that everything else can emanate from because there's so much more diversity there. Um, demographic diversity, socioeconomic diversity, language diversity, etc. Um, so part of the, the attraction for me in going to Hillsdale High School is that they were attempting something that um, most schools have never attempted. They were um, trying to construct um, smaller learning communities um, that would um, kind of institutionalize that kind of a, an approach. You know, the idea that we can make a big school, a comprehensive high school, 1400 students, 
we can make it feel like small communities. And um, I was really interested in um, participating in that, you know, conversion, right? The, the school went through a, a pretty significant um, transformation. Um, and I was fortunate to get there right at the beginning of that. So I got to help write grants for federal grants for, um, you know, um, exploring the ideas and, um, and then eventually an implementation grant that was, I don't know, uh, $1.8 million, I think, um, for us to go through the process of implementing SLCs, um, which we still have today. Uh, it's, it's, it was quite an accomplishment and it's been 20 years and, and it's still there. So that's pretty uh, unusual. That's phenomenal, Tim. I had no idea. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's phenomenal. Um, part of the, you know, part of the initiative was was a bunch of teachers who wanted to provide a private school experience for public school students, and that was kind of the mantra for a while. That um, people kept repeating that phrase that, you know, a private school in a pro public um, uh, public setting. Well, I'm certainly taking a lot of notes because, um, yeah, I, I highly recommend you to write a book or a plural <laughs> your retirement uh, because, right, I think that's the legacy. You guys are laughing about it, but I'm kind of serious because, right, we got to learn, you know, next gen, I want to be an, an educator and I want to learn and um, what better way to, you know, learn from those who've been through um phenomenal transformations like this um but i i've never heard anybody say a constructed community um you know in words used like that so that's very um kind of yeah eye eye opening for me i'm like oh okay i'm gonna i'm gonna study that further <laughs> That's that's great. Um so anyway so i highly encourage you to write these thoughts down um <laughs> other educators to be able to use um right yeah anyway wait so is hillsdale high school where you are now yeah okay 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 gotcha um now go do you have any questions for your partner as so it doesn't turn into me asking a lot of questions mm, i didn't come with questions like you, Nako, I was here. I'm here to have this conversation. Um, yeah, I want to hear you share more about the smaller learning communities, since I think that's such a unique. Um, well, yeah, that's a great question. Actually, yeah, in terms of like the federal grants that you wrote, like, is there some place it's got to be out in the ether of, um, I guess I'll Google it. <laughs> Hillsdale High Transformation is what I will we, Google. Yeah. We were kind of fortunate both in timing and um, location. Um, the timing was that, you know, um, in the early 2000s, um, the government had money to explore this idea of small learning communities um, as an approach to education. And a lot of it came from uh, New York City schools. Um, schools that had undergone some sort of transformation there. And um, there were all kinds of models, you know, like some schools um, set up academies. And so you had um, what amounted to a STEM academy, um, math and sciences, 
uh, and technology, you had a humanities academy, you had an arts command, uh, academy. And what we, what we thought anyway that we learned from studying those models um, was that um, there was kind of, uh, there was a certain amount of de facto tracking going on that um, what you would find is that kids that did not have um, advantage uh, early advantage, early school advantage in terms of their math and science, um, you know, kind of education or parents who were, you know, already in math and science um, kind of expertise areas, um, that then your populations, some of your populations at school would take what was left over, right? And so the humanities was full of, um, kids who did not have those advantages. And so, you know, a humanities academy would be largely um, students of color, um, students from minority cultures, um, students whose language, their first language is not English. Um, by default, they would kind of fall into um, that academy. And so what ended up happening is that um, there was a real unequal distribution demographically and socioeconomically in the academies and so that the humanities academies were typically low socioeconomic and um, uh, much more diverse but um, but then you had like your stem academy was um, largely kind of white upper middle class to upper class um, kids and so um, we wanted to avoid any kind of you know anything that that smacked of any kind of tracking um, of kids and that it divided kids in the in a um, in a way that was um, not conducive to community. Um, it was, you know, it was divisive, right? Um, so, so as we started to do it, we did consider academies, but um, we rejected it fairly early on, um, and decided that um, equity was one of our cornerstones, and we needed to figure out a way to do it equitably so that. Um, you know, each of our small learning communities would um, look very much like the other ones. Um, and so um, the model that we've developed um, with help from Stanford, I mentioned that geographically we were fortunate. Um, Stanford University, Linda Darling Hammond, who was um, Obama's um, education uh, advisor, um, she and the, the um, School of Education at Stanford helped us a tremendous um with with all kinds of things um they we would go over there and we would talk to their professors um, they would provide us with um, professional learning opportunities um, when we hit an impasse on like how are we going to afford or figure this one thing out um you know uh, i was privileged to to be present at a meeting with linda darling hammond um, where we sat with administrators and teachers who were working on the model and um she advised us on how to proceed, um, and so, so that helped a, a lot because we were able to draw on their expertise, um, and they had already experimented with other models of small learning communities. Um, there's a um, East Palo Alto High School, which is a charter school that um, uh, that was basically um, came from the mind of Linda Darling Hammond, and you know was. was um, you know, kind of her baby, her pet kind of project. Um, and so we learned a lot from what she did there. We learned a lot from, you know, other professors' expertise. Um, they helped us um, a lot um, to figure out what we were doing. 
but ultimately our model involves um, uh, just describe what a house looks like. So a lower division house, ninth and 10th grade. Um, it, you know, we have, uh, let's just pick one, uh, Kyoto House. Um, Kyoto House has um, four advisors. Um, the advisors are the English teacher, the um, history teacher or social studies, um, the uh, bio teacher and um, the, the um, algebra one teacher. And so they have a math, science, English and social studies teacher. And each of those teachers serves as a, um, an advisor to th roughly 30 kids, 30, 31 kids. There are roughly 120 kids in the house um, and they identify as Kyoto House. Um, those four advisors meet weekly um, to work out curriculum for the advisory period, which is one of the things that we instituted. Um, kids go to advisory every day. Um, <clears throat> there's curriculum in advisory. Part of it is to support the kids academically. Part of it is, um, you know, wellness um, kinds of activities. Some of it is social responsibility kind of stuff. Um, and so that's a curriculum within the advisory. But the, I think what I think works the best is that those four teachers know all 120 kids. Um, they keep them for two years. They teach them for two years. They advise them for two years. Um, and every week at their weekly meeting, aside from planning curriculum for advisory, um, they set aside time, like my loop, um, my group of advisors, we have 45 minutes once a week to sit and have what we call kid talk. And so we talk about our students who are struggling, why they're struggling, how can we support them. Um, kids don't fall through the cracks. Um, advisors know, I know, um, you know, when my kids are failing math or when they're failing their um, digital photography class, um, uh, I have tools that allow me to go check on their grades. Um, and then I can get back to them and say, you know, you've got three missing assignments in your Algebra 2 class. You know, what can we do about it? Have you talked to your teacher yet? Um, let's figure out how you can make up those assignments so that you can bring your grade up. Um, our graduation rates have um, increased pretty significantly. Um, kids don't just sort of disappear and fall off the radar um, because their, t their advisors are aware of, you know, who they are, where they are, whether they're coming to school or not. Um, and so we, and you know, the, the thing about having them for two years is that we develop a relationship with them um, that is a um, supportive one. It's a caring relationship. Um, you know, a big part of um, the concept of small learning communities is that you have an adult who knows you well on campus. And if, you know, for a lot of kids that, you know, it's their English teacher or their um, chemistry teacher, but it's kind of hit or miss. In this way, it's more systematic that it's my job as an advisor to make sure I know my kids well, uh, my advisees. And so um, I meet with them one-on-one. -on -one. We have them do student-led conferences where their parents come in and the kids lead the conference. Um, and um, we do college and career exploration. I learn about what they like, what they're interested in, what they do. Um, what kind of extracurricular activities they have um, and how they're doing academically so that um, so that by the time we get around to the second semester of senior year, kids are not um, 
you know, there's still some that are credit deficient that need to make up a class here or there. But for the most part, um, those numbers have shrunk um, because somebody is always keeping track of um, that kid and, um, and has contact with them every day. Um, and so, you know, all but one or two of my advisees, I see essentially twice a day um, because I have them both for English and advisory. Um, and so it's pretty easy to get to know somebody when you see them that frequently. That's awesome. So I'm like, that's the high school that your daughter is going to go into as well, right? Yes. Yeah, yeah. that's great. Yeah. In yeah. a year? No. Wait, three years? Two years. Three years. Two years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's awesome. She's in seventh grade right now. Yeah, as you were talking, like, clearly, I just Googled, um, yeah, uh, basically Hillsdale High School Transformation, and boom, like, the first thing that popped up was the Stanford Center for Opportunity Policy and Education, graduate school, and how they were involved. <laughs> and then there yeah. uh YouTube videos as well, of the small learning community. Uh, <laughs> so it's great. I'm going to study up on um, more about that. This sounds great. Um, I'm just curious, like in the current 2023, I, there's like news um, hearing like attention span, the attention span of a student is shrinking because mm -hmm. of the use of the, um, you know, um, Social media and yeah, yeah, yeah. We're like a TikTok. Um, they had the data is my, my favorite show now. <laughs> my Sunday morning news. I had a segment where um, like a tick, an average TikTok flash is like five seconds or and then like a movie when you're shooting a movie, that one like screen is also like five seconds. So I'm just curious if, you know, you've been a teacher for a long time, if you've seen um, experience kids having shorter attention spans. Yeah, they um, they they definitely have less stamina to stay with something at the same you know for a long time um which includes reading um i have you know a handful of students of course just like i always did who are avid readers they've got books with them all the time um that's a pretty small group um most of the other kids you know when they're being honest they'll admit that they've never read a school assigned book cover to cover they've never read every page um because they can't sit and do it for very long. Um, and so some of what, you know, we've had to try to do is um, incorporate reading in class um, to try to stretch their stamina. So, you know, you notice um, like with one of my college prep classes, not so much the AP, those kids are pretty good at staying on task. Um, but my college prep class, if I give them reading time in class, um, for most of them, 15 minutes um, is about as long as they can stick at it before I start seeing them, you know, kind of bubble out into conversation or they pick up their phone or uh, they're on another screen on their um, on their laptop. Um, the, their stamina is about, I mean, on average, around 15 minutes. And ideally, like if they plan to go to college, you know, they've got to push that to 30 minutes to 45 minutes to, you know, can you sit and read for an hour? And that's a, um, that's a question that I would say that 90% of my kids cannot do that. They can't sit for an hour and read. 
um, their increments are more like 10 to 20 minutes. Um, and then they got to take a break and then they can come back to it. You know, if they're really diligent about it, they'll keep coming back to it, but they can't sustain it for any longer than that. Um, so that's a problem. Um, they're used to reading, even when they do read, they're used to reading things in very small um, bites, right? So uh, because of the, the whole concept of, of clickbait, um, I can start reading an article and something else pops up and I'm going to click on that and I'm going to go over there and I never complete anything. Um, I, I, you know, as hard as I might want to try to, to stick with things, all I ever read is the first third of anything and then I move to the next thing and move to the next thing. So that's what their patterns are starting to look like. Um, and so that's hard. Um, as an English teacher, it's, it's hard to deal with. Uh, particularly when it's important for them to learn to write um, and to be able to discuss concepts that are abstract or complex. Um, and so I've had to make some adjustments in, you know, like how material is presented and um, how they gather and store um, information that they're going to be using to write with um, so that my kids who are dyslexic or who are special ed kids that um, cannot sustain their reading and, and are never going to finish um, a 250 page novel um, they still have access to the same information that the other kids have so that they can do the writing um, <clears throat> and so zoom classrooms over the pandemic actually um, were beneficial in a way that you know i acquired tools that i didn't have before that allow me to do things like crowdsourcing quotations. And so the kids just read a short novel, um, Kitchen uh, by Banana Yoshimoto. Um, and they, we selected four motifs that run through the book. Um, there's light and darkness, there's um, kitchens and food, plants and flowers, and um, the, the real versus the surreal. Um, and then we have this tool called the Padlet where I made four columns, one for each motif. Kids selected a motif that they were going to be reading for. And then as they encountered, say, a reference to um, light and darkness, they would copy the um, quotation and paste it into the Padlet. So when it comes time to write the paper, um, even the kids who have not finished reading the novel have an entire catalog of 40 quotations that they can go and pull quotations from the Padlet and still write the paper, still demonstrate that they understand the concept of a motif, even though they didn't actually trace it through the entire book. Um, and so finding ways to get, to let kids, you know, demonstrate what they know and what they know how to do, um, as opposed to, um, you know, uh, you know, just testing them on their retention of their reading. Um, you know, I have to find different ways to do that, right? Like that is one thing that they should be able to do. They should be able to read, take notes and to retain. Um, but that's only one of the skills. The writing skill is a different skill in some ways. And so um, giving them opportunities to demonstrate that they know how to write an essay, they know how to put together um, several quotations and talk about them uh, with some, you know, sophisticated commentary to draw conclusions from them. That's 
that's a little bit different than the actual just pure reading skill. Um, so it's been interesting to, to try to deal with. I mean, I've seen it happening. The erosion of um, stamina is, um, has been consistent over the last 20 years. Um, and it definitely has been affected by um, the internet and access to social media and all that kind of stuff. Mm. Mm. Mm-hmm. Not John, I, I kind of like I feel like I, I kind of you you <laughs> I I I enabled you to speak three words, small learning communities, and then like I went right into my interviewer question, but is there any um thing you wanna no, I think um for part two Definitely, I would love to pivot to talk um, kind of like things that I want to learn more of, which is like policies and the changes and how that has impacted the classroom and, the, you know, the teacher-student experience. And I know, you know, our conversation has been about an hour, so maybe we can table that, table that for part two to learn more about, um, you know, in the past. If you're okay, yeah, I can't believe an hour just went, it went by lightning. Um, well, it's not quite an hour yet. We still have um, like 10 minutes. We're about, um, no, but I wanted to, I, there, yeah, policy, yeah. <laughs> this is some serious topics over there. Yeah, I definitely am curious. Um, I'm just like, there's, as an advisor, Tim, um, I'm just curious also, what are the current, without sharing too much, right? I don't, I don't, I don't need you to share intimate details or anything, but like what are kind of like overarching issues, problems that your students are facing today outside of academics? Well, there's, I mean, after the pandemic, there was a, a, an increased awareness of the, um, the amount of depression, you know, in teenagers. Um, but I was seeing it before the pandemic. Um, I think it, um, exposed it a little bit more and it perhaps for some kids well not perhaps for sure for some kids it, it exacerbated it, it made it worse um but um it clearly coming out of the pandemic um you know schools and districts at least you know in this area have um increased their resources uh, to try to address issues of equity um issues of wellness uh we have um, we have a much more extensive wellness staff on campus now, um, and, um, <clears throat> and, and for sure access to technology, um, schools were finally forced and districts were finally forced to, um, go one-to-one -one with, um, district provided devices. Um, and so, and, and I, you know, I'm fortunate I work for a wealthy dis district, but, um, but every kid has a Chromebook. Um, if something goes wrong with the Chromebook, it's replaced or repaired. Um, I can count on them bringing their Chromebooks to class every day. Um, the kids that are, you know, um, uh, socioeconomically more advantaged, they bring their um, their Macs and their, um, you know, more sophisticated um, devices. But at least everybody in the room has a device, um, and that was not the case uh, prior to the pandemic. Um, 
So in some ways, the pandemic forced um, policy changes for districts um, in terms of both wellness and access to tech that um, that clearly were um, inequitable. And uh, you know, a, a good a good portion of the reason, if you if you bothered to ask kids before the um, pandemic. Um, the reason that kids couldn't complete homework at home was because they didn't have Wi-Fi and they were constantly having to go to the library or to Starbucks or someplace that provided Wi-Fi in order to try to get their homework done. And if they could not do that for whatever reason, um, then they didn't turn things in. Um, and so not only did they, you know, and, and they're doing it on their phones as opposed to on a laptop, which is very difficult to type on, uh, to type an essay on your phone. Um, and so, you know, um, if anything, the, the one big benefit from the pandemic was, um, you know, one-to-one -one devices, acknowledging the fact that not all kids have access, um, making sure that there were hotspots for kids that don't have Wi-Fi, um, that kind of stuff uh, has continued after you know the distance learning classroom kind of experience and that they've um, uh, they've committed to um, a lot of money to make sure that that happens um, so that's a good thing thank you for sharing is that i'm just curious like is that public money or is it corporate money because you guys are in the neighbor you're in like this silicon valley area yeah. in the heart of it so i would expect that you know companies like google are donating um tech you'd be, you'd right? be surprised about how stingy they are with right? that stuff. Dang. <laughs> um well, we don't get yeah. a lot from them we do get something um most of it comes from our operating budget and you know they had to move money around and figure out you know how to afford it but um and and you know they do they do receive um some grants but they're not um they, they wouldn't really make a dent. Um, you know, uh, they provide a few devices or they provide some services, but very little of that, to be honest. Interesting. Yeah, I the analogy, like for where I live, we are we also are kind of privileged to be living in a public school community that is heavily endorsed by like Microsoft and Bill Gates being in the corner here. Yeah. So um, there is definitely tech uh into grade schools. I think in from third grade, you, you receive a laptop, school laptop. Mm -hmm. uh, and unfortunately or fortunately, even in uh, first grade, you you, you bring home an iPad. <laughs> it's like, yeah. it's like, okay. <laughs> anyway, um, so that's interesting. Okay, thank you for sharing. Um, yeah, so talk about time i am uh not only is tim phenomenal as we all could hear in our 55 minutes conversation there will be a part two if you don't mind <laughs> and three no <laughs> um, but uh, uh uh a lot of the times um you are mentioned as a grill master that's mm. your other talent <laughs> now <laughs> so um I'm just curious. Uh, I guess we always talk about we we always end on a food note. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, what is I know not John shared. Um, you guys had Korean barbecue last night. We did, yeah. Yummy, Kabi. Um, yeah. 
kind of thing. Um, so like, what is it that you like about grilling and what is your plan for dinner today, tonight? Well, dinner tonight is leftover cotta beef. Um, <laughs> but um, I, I just like, um, like, I don't mind standing over the grill um, half the day to do, you know, ribs for five hours or um, do a brisket or something like that. Um, and, and I'm not literally standing over it the entire time, but, um, you know, to start early and um, take six hours to cook something um, is, um, I, I I enjoy that. And so on the weekends when I can do it, um, you know, sometimes I'll just do it just because um, I, I want to um, listen to a baseball game and just grill all day. Um, the, I like, I like cooking. I like preparing food, um, whether it's on the grill or in the kitchen. Um, my, I mentioned that I'm the oldest of seven kids. You know, it's like when we were in high school, um, my mom basically said, yeah, I'm making dinner once and you guys, your schedules, um, you know, you got to learn to reheat or to, you know, prepare your own food if your schedule is going to be, if you got night practice or something like that. So, um, so I learned to cook when I was in high school and uh, turned out, you know, when I first went out in the world and had roommates that um, none of my roommates could cook and they were perfectly willing to do all the cleaning um, if I did all the cooking. And so I'd much rather cook it than clean up after it. Um, so it, it was actually a benefit to be able to do that. So I like cooking. I love it. I like, I like mom's uh, method there. <laughs> yeah. Too many, too many of us with different schedules. I played basketball. My brother played soccer. Um, my sister had a job. Um, my other sister, you know, was involved in after school, um, school activities. And so our schedules were all over the place. And um, it was impossible after a while to sit down and have a family meal because we were all different places at the same time. Mm. So I'm, I'm uh, assuming or being presumptuous here, uh, Nauta, you made the Katabi marinade? Mm. Tell me, tell, tell us more. Delicious. How mm. do you make <laughs> my mom's recipe and this last visit I was very um, intentional about trying to be as close as measuring her um, recipe versus just eyeballing it so um, I have the closest kind of measured recipe from her this time around and so it's shoyu um, soy sauce Meeting, uh, what is meeting in English? Rice. Wine. It's rice vinegar. Yeah, rice wine vinegar or rice something. Sweet rice wine. Yeah. Oh, rice wine. Rice wine and sake, and grated um, garlic, hot peppers, um, tonganashi. So I don't know what what is that in English. That, you're right. Hot peppers. Hot peppers, but from the Korean market. <laughs> um, <laughs> Hot chili flakes, almost like, right? Um, and then miso. And miso? Sugar. What kind of dark miso? Um, I had shiro miso, white miso. So. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. yeah. I talked yep. about that. Sugar. Miso was sugar. Yep. Mm. Oh, and sorry, sesame. <clears throat> so I'll crush uh, like 
2 tablespoons of sesame seeds and also mm-hmm. sesame oil. Can you share this? Seriously, can you share this recipe with me? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's um, definitely always a crowd pleaser. Everybody loves it. Yeah. I mean, come on. Like her gram- grandma is like the legacy here. Yeah. Uh- <laughs> we put it on the vegetables and mushrooms too. It's really delicious. On Yummy. Hi. Arigato gozaimasu. <laughs> Okay. What, well, what are you planning for dinner? I don't know. After that, I'm just like, um, I had plenty of popcorn at the Taylor Swift concert, movie <laughs> concert, movie concert. Um, I do recommend. It's it's hilarious though. We, I had to take my six year old daughter too. Um, she got. She was like at, at that one hour mark. She's like, when is it done? <laughs> Can we go? <laughs> I I was surprised. I thought like she likes watching a lot of like kids movies on her iPad or what have you. So I thought she would last, but no. Um, so not that you guys have a six year old, but <clears throat> but I think Minachan would like it. Mm. Yeah. So highly recommend. I'm a little. Uh, yeah. But um, no, I have. I don't know. I don't know. I really don't know. I have to take back Mia to college, so I might pick something up or give me some inspiration. What are your size? Are your side dishes um, leftovers too? From last night? Uh, yeah, we have portobello <laughs> mushrooms, so we'll um, roll oh. that uh, with the same tare. Mm. Uh, rice and whatever's in the fridge, salad <laughs> or whatever. Yeah. After yeah. I... Production yesterday, we don't want to do too much. Right, 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 right. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. Really. This is a. What's that? I said, thank you for having me on. Okay. It's a, um, I think it's, you know, it's a love letter to her families too. So I think Mina Chang would really appreciate as she grows older, right? Not Mm -hmm. now maybe, but to listen to you talk about, um, you know, who like you know what brought you into teaching and everything um and maybe like this this podcast might go to you know listeners who have been your students so i think it's a great (laughs) color to add um i certainly enjoyed it very much um and as we've said there's so much more (laughs) that we would you to share so thank you thank you sounds good thank you so much (laughs) Love you. Love you.